We all know that cocktails and spirits are wrapped tightly in American culture. Dr. Jessica Spector of Yale University and founder of the Academy Drinks explains it to us. You can mix yourself a favorite cocktail and listen. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Today we're speaking with Dr. Jessica Spector. She is a lecturer at Yale University and the CEO of the Academy Drinks. She is very, very engaged in the spirits and alcohol industry and knows all about cocktails. And she teaches about culture. And I want to welcome you. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. So I want to ask you, how does a person with a PhD in philosophy come to the cocktail? (laughs) Ah, that's a good question. So I began my academic career as a scholar of early modern philosophy and ethics. And I taught about intellectual and cultural history. But at core, I was a scholar of the Scottish Enlightenment. So I was in grad school working in the archives in Edinburgh, Scotland, doing research for my dissertation on David Hume. And when I would take breaks from that work, I would come out of the archives and wander around Edinburgh. And it was in the mid 90s. And it was a time when the uh, whiskey industry was having a lot of trouble. And people would give away single malt scotch as a way to entice you into their stores. And I tried a lot of very good single malt scotch at that time. And I traveled around Scotland and visited distilleries. and became very interested in the whiskey industry. And that was almost 30 years ago. And from there moved into cocktails and other spirits. And the history of, well, the history of food and drink has always interested me. And I think looking at something so fundamental as distilling and the history of spirit just fits with other interests I have of what we value and what we hold dear. And so, so tell me about the Academy Drinks. Oh, um, well, when I first, I've left academia and come back to it. And when I first left academia, I was, I started a writing business and I wrote for attorneys and business was the Academy. And when I moved into writing about drinks, I called my business the Academy Drinks and that kind of took over my life. And so when I came back to academia, my private work right about drinks and my academic work came together. And the Academy Drinks is where I do private seminars that are sort of private versions of what I teach about at Yale. Okay. And so how do you bring all of that into your work at 
at Yale? Or do you have any classes that are specifically about drinking or uh, cocktail? That is, culture? yes. So I'm at Yale in the spring and I work privately in the fall. And what I teach about at Yale is drink culture. So the ethics of drink, the aesthetics of drink, history of drink, specifically about cocktails. And I teach, I team teach with a local restaurant and bar owner. And we change up what we teach all the time. And most recently we've been focused on the aesthetics and ethics of drink, but we've talked about the business of drink and the history of drink and you know everything from sort of British colonialism to recently we talked about in the 1980s and what that looked like in culture in America. Wow. That, yeah, that sounds very fortunate for those students. I'm sure they love talking about drinking. <laughs> well, the fortunate thing for us as teachers is nobody takes that class who doesn't want to. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. And it's always fun to teach people who want to be, who want to be there, who want to be taught. That's very true. And, and are, are these uh, graduate students or undergraduates? No, they're undergraduates. So uh, I teach in the residential seminar program, mm -hmm. which is generally seniors, some juniors, and they have to, students have to apply to take these courses. Mm -hmm. So they tend to be 21, but they don't have to be. And it's an academic class, so there's no drinking in class. But they tend to be students who are very interested in, in cocktails and drinks. Yeah, so I could see the benefit of having people really apply to be in a class and have to be selected and approved. That's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, better than teaching uh, freshman math or something where you have people who just have to be there. <laughs> well, that's it's true in most places about all philosophy classes. People don't generally have to take philosophy. Yes. So I've always at least gone into the classroom with the fiction in my head of you all want to be here mm -hmm. so, and I love what I teach so um that wouldn't everyone love, love it right? <laughs> yeah I can see that for sure so I'm really interested in what you you started to talk about and the single malt scotches that were being given as samples to entice people in stores what do you think about the value or the sort of excitement that people seem to attribute to single malt alcohol or liquor and not necessarily um, liking blends? You know, it seems it's in some ways there are things you can do with a blend that you can't do with single malt because you're stuck with whatever the flavor profile is. You know, I think similarly, people argue about about that with wines. And so I'm just I'm curious what you think about that and how much blending gets done with single malts from year to year, even if it's still the same same malt. Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a single malt is. I mean, unless it's a single cask of whiskey, it's all because the the blender is the underappreciated person at a distillery, the person uh -huh. who takes the casks, puts them together mm -hmm. and chooses, you know, the cask from the back of the warehouse or, or from the top of the warehouse. If it's, if it's um, not a dunnage warehouse, not a warehouse where, you know, all the casks are on one level mm -hmm. um, and decides this cask would taste good 
mixed with that cask. If they're all from the same growing season, the same distillery, it's a single malt and not a blend, but you're still blending casks together. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a misunderstanding a lot of people have about what a blend is. Mm-hmm. And I think that a good blend is a beautiful thing. And it's kind of funny that some people who who spend their life in cocktails and enjoying cocktails will turn up their nose at a blended whiskey, uh, which is really the same sort of thing. You know, it's about mixing ingredients together, except you're mixing the same kind of liquid together. Right. Yeah. And I think that that happens with everything like, um, um, balsamic vinegar and just all sorts of things that um, are in different casks, even if they are from the same period, blending just evens it out. And, you you know, you're really, really leaving a lot to to chance when you're saying, okay, this comes from a single barrel. You know, this is your, your one barrel. This is perfect because you just can't rely on that. And you want some consistency in flavor. You want some consistency in flavor when you, you, let's say you go to a liquor store and you think I'm in the mood for, you know, light, or I'm in the mood for something heavy or, or peaty or salty or, you know, with wine, you know, I'm in the mood for something panic. If you're, Picking something from a single cask, you're you're not going to know what you're getting because right. one cask can be sitting right next to another. It can be a sister cask to it, you know, made from staves from the same tree, down, you know, at the same time and aged right next to each other. And the liquid from the two casks can age right next to each other for the same amount of time and taste completely different. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of the amazing, wonderful things about this world. But Blending them together lets you play with this human-made stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a berry that grows on a tree. We're talking about stuff that's made by people. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's there's nothing, I think, sacred about a single cask. It's just, it's one thing to drink from a single cask. It's another thing to drink liquids that have been blended together. It's interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me also, because I, I just find this to be really, really interesting that you are talking about this as, a, as an academic subject. What is it that, uh, that you think that it tells us about ourselves? Well, I wouldn't go into taste in an academic classroom, mm-hmm. but I would certainly talk about why people value at certain moments of time, say a blended whiskey over a single barrel whiskey and what's happening in a culture when say premiumization is on the rise, premiumization, the idea that, um, you know, it's this, this neologism, this term that that's supposed to capture people spending more money on fancier, luxury items like Mm -hmm. what's happening in a culture when people are buying more expensive whiskeys and craft whiskeys 
are growing astronomically and that segment of the market is growing astronomically. So that's the kind, one kind of thing you can look at. Or it's interesting that at some times in, in culture, gar huge garnishes become, elaborate garnishes become a thing. And at other times, no garnishes become a thing. Mm -hmm. Or special glasses. Yes, yeah, special glasses or bartenders wearing waxed mustaches and, and having suspenders. Like, or the, I just talked about the 80s. The absolutely absurdly named drinks of the 80s, the somewhat X-rated drink names of the 80s that had no bearing on what was in the glass. Like, <laughs> if you came from Mars and you came to the world and walked into a bar in 1988 and you had like briefed on what human culture was like and then someone said here's a drink and it's called sex on the beach and, and you looked at the ingredients of what were in the glass you said, what are humans doing like what's going on and what does this mean about the world and then somebody plopped you down in like 1880 and gave you a martini You'd be like, are these the same people? Like, <laughs> what what does this mean about the world? And I think if you look at you know who was president in the U.S. at the time and what was happening in politics, it makes perfect sense why one drink um, was popular at a certain time and why another drink was popular at another time. And or at least it's really interesting to talk about whether you think it makes sense or not. Mm -hmm. And so have you ever talked uh, or discussed the waning of the cocktail, especially as a craft cocktail? We have a lot of bottles at the museum of pre-mixed cocktails that you could buy for your home bar. And I mean, these are, they have everything in them, including preservatives, and which I always think is interesting. Why do you need preservatives? You have it in all this alcohol, <laughs> but um there's stabilizers and all kinds of things. If you read the labels from the 1950s and you see what's in there. And, um, and, you know, to me, it was like, no wonder people started drinking wine because this stuff is horrible. <laughs> and of course in new Orleans, I think we had a totally different environment because uh, not that people didn't buy those pre-mixed drinks, but we always drank cocktails, whether they were highballs or whatever they were called at the time, we were drinking spirits and we were drinking wine. So we came, you know, from our beginnings as a wine drinking place. And so it wasn't as though we discovered wine at that time because we were already drinking wine. But I always thought that that would be a real push into drinking wine just drinking those horrible uh, pre-mixed things that you could buy. <laughs> the pre-mixed things are interesting because when the cocktail renaissance of the last 15, 20 years was in full flower, people talked about those pre-mixed drinks and sour mix and all that awfulness of the 1980s as if it had only existed in the 1980s. But of course there were bottled cocktails um, several times in the past mm -hmm. and they're back again. And the talk now is, well, they're better now, right? And I mean, they're better. They're 
they're still not as good as fresh. I, I don't think anyone would say they're as good as fresh, but studying history over the long haul, I mean, mm -hmm. over you know thousands of years, um, you, you see people repeat patterns over and over and over again. I mean, mm. we're people, we, we do the same kinds of things over and over and over again. And that's true in the history of the cocktail too. I mean, there've been several golden ages. There've been several booms and busts and that's true of the liquor industry as a whole. Boom and bust, boom and bust. It's a boom and bust industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting to me, um, I, in with my law background, looking at the changes post-prohibition when there really was that three-tiered system. Right now, the three-tiered system is kind of wonky, but when it started out as this pure three-tiered system with all kinds of, of hope that this would keep the alcohol industry from having the kind of pressure power that it had had before over bars and things like that. Of course, then all that happens is that that power moved to the distributor. And so you didn't, all you do is move the power source. You didn't actually stop there from being a power source, yeah. but still it was very diffused because there were so many distributors. And so you didn't have one single source, but today there are so few distributors left. They've just gobbled each other up and they've gotten to be really giant sized and just a few. I think that it's interesting. We create this solution and then people try to defeat what the purpose of the solution is. And over time, they gradually do. And then you need to come up with a new solution, often going back to the early days, you know, just repeating it over and over. I think you just summed it up better than I've ever heard anyone sum up what the issue is. Because people, especially people not from the U.S., look at our system and they say, that's crazy. You know, what is this three-tiered system? And I always say, well, there's a reason for it. I mean, you know, it's time to change it now. But there's a reason that it existed. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a time to get rid of it, you know, or change it. And it's because I think that you put your finger right on the important thing. It's because... People are still motivated by the same things. People are, we're generous and greedy and venal and funny and, you know, selfish and not, and we're people. We still will do the same things. And then you have to adjust policy around right. it. I mean, right. in any society across time and place, that's what people do. So then you adjust policy. Right. And that's where we are now. We got the policy to take account for the fact that, you know, as you say, you know, these distributors have gotten gobbled up and the, and now there's powers concentrated in much fewer hands. And we got to do something about that. So. Yep. And I think um, I think a lot of the distributors actually are getting more involved in manufacturing of spirits and and wine and other kinds of alcohol because they see the writing on the wall yeah. and so they want to be ready and uh, i always think well at least they are thinking ahead whether anybody else is <laughs> we always wait until there's a crisis before we act 
but they are thinking ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. And you see it with independent bottlers too in, you know, in other countries, uh, especially here, you know, here we call it sourcing as if sourcing's so terrible, sourcing whiskey. In Scotland, they talk about independent bottlers and independent bottlers have, an, there's a new respect for them, but they're also opening distilleries. And then, you know, the lines get blurred and. Right, right. I, I don't. I don't think any of that's bad. I just think it's interesting. And I, and I like to sort of note it and I study the history of that and what it means or how it reflects and embodies, not to sound too pretentious, but how it reflects and embodies what's going on in culture generally. Yes. I, I spoke to a company that bottles, they have some of their own trees, but generally they bottle olive oil. And uh, they get olive oil from many countries and then they blend it for different markets. All of this is happening in Italy, but they get Tunisian oil and Spanish oil and oil from all sorts of places, as well as Italian oil. And then they blend it for the market. So I was asking them about blending for the American market and because they're, they're doing that. And it paralleled all kinds of spirits blending and other kinds of things so perfectly. I thought this is just the same thing. <laughs> it was amazing. It happens with honey, with maple syrup, with, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking, I was actually reading something in one of your books about Anywhere USA uh -huh. and how New Orleans is not Anywhere USA. And I've always loved New Orleans because it is not anywhere USA. You could wake up, someone could plop you down in New Orleans and you open your eyes and you know where you are. But I actually think that when you eat food in almost anywhere in America, that isn't a chain restaurant. And even in some chain restaurants, you are not in anywhere USA. Because unless you go into a grocery store and you buy something that's been blended in a factory for the American market. You are eat, eating and drinking things that still have locality and still have place. Mm -hmm. And I, I was in a honey store yesterday in Westport, Connecticut. It's called Savannah Bee, which I think is actually from um, the South. It's from mm -hmm. Georgia. Um, uh -huh. They have a store in Westport, Connecticut. And they had honeys from all over the world. And then they had some local honeys. And this was the other end of the spectrum from buying, you know, honey in a bear, mm -hmm. in a plastic bear at the grocery store yeah. that says honey on it. And there you're buying stuff that's blended for the American market. But honey is has to be local because bees can only fly a certain distance from their hive. So it's by its nature local. And you may drive past a strip mall in America and you could be in anywhere USA. But if you walk into somewhere and buy the local honey, you're not in anywhere USA. You're tasting local. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you look at the stores in a strip mall, if you're where I grew up on Long Island, it's going to be a bagel store, a pizza store and something else. And you know where you are. And if you're in Indiana, where I lived for a long time, you're going to get biscuits and white gravy and you know where you are. And if you're in New Orleans, I mean, you can tell us what you would get in 
the a strip mall outside of town because there are strip malls, right? Right. And that's why I think food and drink are so fantastic because that's where you still get the locality and the sense of place, no matter what the architecture looks like, no matter how people sound, even if they don't have an accent, et cetera, et cetera. No, I totally agree. I think that food really does represent that. And that's why I get so fascinated by it. Yeah. So when you are out there in the world, can you turn it off? I mean, I know I can't turn it off. It's just like you're out there and you're at a bar or you're in someone's home or whatever when we used to be in people's homes and, Mm -hmm. and you just can't stop making whatever analogies you're going to make or asking them questions about why they do things and all of that sort of thing. Um, (laughs) No, I can't. And um, it it can be charming for like two minutes, maybe, but my kids, if I have four teenagers and if you ask them that they roll their eyes. <laughs> They're like, I just want to eat, you know, <laughs> I just want to eat. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, the ancient Sumerians. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I think the nice thing about food and drink is everybody has, is on equal footing in having something to say about it. Mm-hmm. I may have some nerdy comment about history and culture, but everybody can come to the table with, um, on equal footing. No, I, I totally agree with that. I I think that's, that's really, really true. So I do want to ask you about your role with the um, Museum of Distilled Spirits. So tell me about that. Oh, so the Museum of Distilled Spirits is currently virtual. The director is Jennifer Lawrence, and she is looking to make it brick and mortar. And I am the director of history and culture. So there are directors for each of the spirits and then, you know, gin and um, vodka and uh, cognac and et cetera, et cetera, whiskey. And I am the director of history and culture. So I am in charge of programming around topics around all the other spirits, but about the kinds of things we've just been talking about. So. The first two talks I did were about around the 1920s and post-war and then World War II and post-Second World War. Okay. Are there any other ones planned? Yes. I In June, I'm doing a, a talk with the director of Gin on Vermouth. So we're going to work together on that one. And then I think in... July, I have to, I would like to talk to Jennifer about this, but I would like to do something on the 1980s. That's going to be a little tougher because that is a hard, um, that is a hard time period to cover seriously. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Remembering it and remembering how ridiculous and funny the time period is, but I think I can do it. I think I can cover that time period seriously. (laughs) Oh, that sounds, both of them sound really, (laughs) really interesting. Um, So, okay. Um, I, I just really want to thank you for, for talking to me today and anything that we need to remember or know about our own study of uh, the spirits world? I would urge everyone, you know, I asked my students to do this and they came back with, 
I love teaching because I learn something from my students all the time. They came back with such interesting answers. I would urge everyone to ask somebody older than them, half generation at least older than them, what were you drinking when you were my age? I mean, I mean their age, you know, mm -hmm. just say, what were you drinking when you were my age? And then pay attention to whether what the person tells them is actually about the thing they were drinking or eating or whether they get all kinds of other stories. So my students said, what were you drinking when you were my age? And their parents ended up, most of them asked their parents, ended up telling them all about their college years. So food and drink open, open up people's backstories and lives to you. So I would just say to your listeners, ask somebody who's a half generation at least older than you, what were you eating and drinking when you were my age? It's a great question to get to know somebody in a way you might not already. That sounds like a really, really great opener. Certainly much better yeah. than what's your sign. So <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Jessica Spector. And thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.